My name is Ayodele Adio and you're welcome to the Avalon Podcast. President Donald Trump has finally been impeached by House Democrats, but he can't wait to have his day in the Senate where he believes the Republicans in the Senate will acquit him of all wrongs. But what does this impeachment tell us about the 2020 presidential elections? Some have argued that it would only make the Trump base a lot more militant and that could swing the election in his favor. The basis for this argument, however, is what happened during the Clinton years in 1998 when he was impeached by House Republicans and they went on to lose several seats in the midterm elections, costing them the control of the House. But I believe Donald Trump's case is different. In 1998, only 30% of Americans were in favor of impeaching Clinton, while 50% today want Trump impeached. In 1998, Clinton had a job approval rating of 65%, while Donald Trump has a 44% rating. It is therefore hard for me to see how this affects the Democrats in the 2020 elections. My guest today is Toluche Olorunipa, the White House reporter for the Washington Post and a regular contributor on CNN. Tolu, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. So, so first of all, the editor of Christianity Today, Mark Gilly, um, wrote an interesting column arguing um, in favor of the impeachment of um, President Trump. Um, in his words, he said, but the facts in this instance are unambiguous. The President of the United States attempted to use his political power to coerce a foreign leader, to harass and discredit one of the President's political opponents. That is not only a violation of the Constitution, more importantly, it is profoundly immoral. Coming from, you know, a top evangelical, do you think this is going to move the needle in the evangelical community? It could have a moderate impact on some evangelicals. There are many Christians in the U.S. who support President Trump, who like him for what he's done on policy, who think he's been a great president for things like abortion, pushing back against same-sex marriage, uh, doing various things that uh, are important to uh, some Christians. But there are a minority of Christians who are uncomfortable with the way he talks, the way he handles the presidency, some of the things that he says that are not necessarily Christian-like, um, the fact that he insults people, and the fact that now he's being impeached for, um, in the words of many Democrats, abusing his power and using the power of the presidency to go after his political enemies. And there are a lot of Christians who are uncomfortable with the way President Trump handles himself. And I think you saw some of that in the Christianity Today um, article, and that they felt that even if President Trump does some strong things for Christians on policy, he is not behaving as, a, as they would like a president to behave in terms of being a moral leader for the country, being an example for children, um, showing Christian-like qualities in the way he handles himself. And I think that's something that President Trump is concerned about, that there are a 
good number of Christians who do not support the way he handles the presidency. Yeah, but that's the funny thing, you know, when certain evangelicals make the point that, you know, President Trump is pushing back on abortion and he's appointing conservative judges, you know, into the federal courts across the country. The reality is any other Republican um, elected president will do basically the same thing. So why stick with Trump when every other Republican president will definitely elect, uh, will definitely appoint conservative judges to, to federal courts and will definitely push back on abortion? That's true. Um, you would expect other Republican presidents to follow that playbook and push for conservative ideas, conservative judges, push back on abortion. They, a lot of Christians feel that Republicans have been too soft in the past. They haven't been willing to stand up and fight. And, and for that reason, you've seen um, Christians lose out on a lot of policy battles, especially in the last uh, decade, whether it's on, you know, abortion issues or whether it's on gay rights issues or, you know, prayer in schools and just various things that uh, Christians feel that Republicans were not fighting hard enough and for the republic for the republican christians that support president trump they feel that he is doing um the fighting that they wish previous republicans would have done not only supporting the policies but also fighting very strongly for um for those ideas so that's part of the reason he's getting some support for uh from christians that that makes sense okay now nancy pelosi the house speaker you know has asked um, you know, that she wants to see the, basically the process that the trial is going to follow at, you know, at the Senate before she releases the articles of impeachment. Of course, this is frustrating President Trump and um, because he wants a speedy trial because he believes, and quite frankly, he will be acquitted, you know, by the majority of the Republicans in the Senate. But do you think this delay by Nancy Pelosi poses any strategic advantage for the Democrats? Well, there could be some advantage in that she is trying to push for a more fair trial in the Senate, more of a process where they could likely, you know, get some witnesses or at least not have it be just a rubber stamp on President Trump's innocence. There's only a limited amount of leverage that she has, and this is what she has, and she's, she's going to try to use it because we know President Trump wants the trial to take place quickly. He wants there to be a robust defense of his policies and of how he's uh, managing the presidency. So Nancy Pelosi is holding that back from him. And as much as he wants it and she's holding it back, that's some leverage that she can use to get something out of the Republicans. Fair, fair There's enough. only a limit to how much she can, she can use it, but I think she's using it at this moment to try to get what she can. Interesting. But, you know, many have argued, you know, even some Democrats have also argued that this whole impeachment um, run by the, 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 the Democrats are going to hurt the Democrats in the 2020 elections. Um, I, I don't get the sense of where this argument comes because I, I'm sure that many of them are looking back at the Clinton days when President Clinton was impeached and um, that affected the elections of Republicans across the country and then the Democrats took over the House and they are using that as a basis um, to predict what would happen in the 2020 elections should the Democrats go ahead with this whole impeachment thing. Um, but if you look at the numbers, um, the approval ratings of um, President Clinton at the time was about 60%. Trump hasn't um, climbed above um, 45%. 
um, the Clinton years, the, the, the polls that we're taking, I think was just about 30% that were in favor of impeachment. Um, for President Trump, it's about 50% who are in favor of impeachment. So uh, do, do you buy this argument or there's, is there a sensible argument in the fact that um, this whole impeachment thing will come back to haunt the Democrats? I think it's hard to say at this point, and a lot of people who are trying to compare what's happening uh, right now to what happened in, in 1998 are making a little bit of a stretch because so much time has passed, the politics have changed so significantly, and as you pointed out, President Trump is a much different president than President Clinton, and his approval rating is much different as well. So there's always a fear when you do something that hasn't been done in a while that there will be some unintended consequences or that things will spiral out of control or that, you know, there may be some challenges that you face from voters because you're doing something so significant. But I'm not sure that the Democrats who think that this will be a replay of 1998 um, are on firm ground just because so many things have changed and President Trump is such a, an unorthodox president that I don't know that we would expect him to benefit from this politically. And we've had a couple of elections in the last few weeks in at the state level here where President Trump tried to make it all about impeachment and tried to say this is a referendum on the impeachment process and Democrats actually did well in those state level elections. So there's no sense so far from what we've seen that President Trump is benefiting or that he will, you know, receive the political windfall from this impeachment process. And the election is several months away. It could be that there's just not an impact between now and November of next year. <laughs> By my sentiment, exactly. But now that we're talking about um, 2020 um, elections, um, I mean, with what happened in the British elections, um, you know, um, how the Conservatives had um, a clean swoop, um, electing, you know, winning more seats, uh, you know, than they had in close to three decades. Are there any lessons to learn from the elections in the UK and America where... Um, or do you see if if the, if the Democrats get to nominate somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's on the far left, um, are we going to be in for another surprise or another shocker like we saw in the British elections? There is some concern among Democrats that that is what could happen. We did see in 2016 after the UK voted for Brexit, everyone was shocked by the results. And then a couple months later, the U.S. voted for President Trump, and it was another shocking result. A lot of people have drawn that comparison that the U.K. is in some ways comparable to the U.S. and some of the same political forces that drove that shocking result in the U.K. could also happen in the U.S. And there is some concern that um, nominating someone who's too far to the left, who's in the mold of a Jeremy Corbyn, who's not seen as someone who's been governing the country, could allow President Trump to sweep into a second term. And I think Democrats are starting to come to that realization, even though, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have a lot of support and have very uh, energetic supporters. It's not clear that they're able to calm those Democratic nerves when it comes to people who are fearful that they're too far to the left or that they can't build a coalition to beat Trump in 2020. So that's just, that is something that Democrats are, are grappling with and i think several have pointed to what happened in the uk as a warning signal that maybe they should look for someone who's more moderate you've heard joe biden point out that he feels that he's a more moderate candidate who can take on trump and who would not suffer the same 
the heat that Jeremy Corbyn suffered in the UK. So there are people talking about those results and trying to make a comparison to the US. And obviously there are people who push back and say two different countries and you know two different systems and we shouldn't be too quick to draw those comparisons. Yeah, but, and yeah. right now it's not yet clear what's going to happen and how much it's going to reflect what happened in the UK. But because Democrats are nervous about President Trump winning again, there's a lot of talk about what to do as a result of what happened in the UK. Yeah, true. I mean, I understand that. I know that Pete Buttigieg is beginning to pick up a bit of steam. And um, of course, Elizabeth Warren has been doing fairly well. But I mean, it, it, do we come to the point where we admit that um, despite his public um, gaffes in recent times and you know his somewhat inconsistency when he's being on the debate stage that Joe Biden the former vice president is still the Democrats best chance of beating Donald Trump in the 2020 elections yeah if you look at the polling that's what Democrats believe largely they believe that Joe Biden is the strongest candidate to defeat Trump in part because Voters feel that he can go to places that Trump won in 2016. Some of the blue-collar neighborhoods, some of the voters who voted for, for Obama then switched to vote for Trump in 2016. They feel that Biden can get some of those voters back. He's been in Washington for a long time. He has a long track record. He's not seen as extreme or overly liberal like some of the other candidates. And he has stayed steady in the polls. He hasn't fallen in the polls, even as he's made these gaffes over the last few months, even as, as you said, his, his debate performances have not been steady. We haven't seen voters abandon him in droves, and he has strong support among black American voters, and that is uh, something that has helped him and boosted him throughout the campaign. The fact that he is far and away the top candidate in terms of support among the black community and because the Democrats are very much reliant on black voters, his strong position with that voting group helps him and has kept him atop uh, the entire field for several months now and throughout most of the year. And because so many voters see, see him as the strongest candidate to go up against Trump, he has maintained a steady level of support and he stands a good chance of winning the nomination if things remain as they are for the next several months as people start voting in February and on through the primary election next year. Okay, so finally, um, final question before I let you go. Uh, let's talk about um, for a bit, you know, something that has not got, um, getting gotten attention in the last um, few years since President Trump got into office. I think it's been a year now since um, John Bolton uh, put out the statement that I mean, it wasn't a clear policy towards Africa, but I don't see that since then there has been any clear policy um, from the White House towards Africa. And um, pressed to ask, um, do you get the sense that, um, you know, th this current administration doesn't really see any, um, you know, strategic advantage of engaging Africa? Um, and hence the reason why there hasn't been any clear policy towards Africa, besides the fact that um, they either want to put a few boots on ground in the Sahel to deal with, with the rising terrorism in that area. But by and large, um, there hasn't been any clear policy towards Africa. Why is that? Yeah, you hear President Trump talk a lot about America first, and his strategy is to not focus as much on foreign issues, but specifically when it comes to Africa, he 
almost doesn't even compare, think about it as a place to put forward policy or a place to really use focus much of his energy. You rarely hear him talk about Africa and his policy speeches. He has not visited Sub-Saharan Africa as president. He has not really spent a lot of time talking about it or appointing officials to take the lead on Africa policy. And I think it's sort of one of those things where, you know, we, we heard President Trump talk about Africa and African countries in denigrating terms earlier in his presidency. And he just doesn't see it as a place to spend much of his energy and his time. And a lot of the people that he's appointed have not wanted to spend a lot of time talking about Africa. They, when it comes to foreign policy, they talk more about the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, um, Central America because of the immigration issue. President Trump tends to focus more on either countries where the U.S. has you know, military, a large military presence, country, c- countries where he feels like the countries are rich and that he can get something out of them, whether it's Saudi Arabia or trying to ask countries in Asia to pay the U.S. for military protection. When he looks at African countries, I don't think he sees any of that. He doesn't see a, you know, a place where he can extract money from, you know, from rich governments or a place where there are threats of terrorism that threaten the United States. And I think for that reason, um, he doesn't see it as a place where he wants to focus and spend much of his time and energy and I think that also is reflected in much of his administration. Um, they so, haven't spent much time yeah. uh, focusing on Africa at all. Um, to the extent they have, it's been to try to reduce, you know, migration from African countries, reduce some of the migration category, immigration categories that have been beneficial to um, to various migrants coming from African countries. And the overall sense you get from the Trump administration is that. They don't have much of a priority uh, when it comes to Africa, and um, they don't want to spend much time talking about it or talking about the issues that uh, the continent faces. One thing that they do talk about is, you know, their com- competition with China. Exactly. And I was going to say China that. China making a lot of investment in Africa. They use that as, a, as an area where they are somewhat interested because they want to counter China, um, at least when it comes to the rhetoric of saying, you know, African countries should be aware that China is not the best partner for investment and that they should be aware of what they're getting into. But you don't see the Trump administration offering much of an alternative to China. Instead, it's more of just warnings and sort of lamenting that the Chinese have been able to gain such a strong foothold in the continent. Um, But other than that, we don't see much focus at all from the Trump administration. Um, fantastic way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, um, Tolu, for coming on this podcast and for sharing your insight in American politics. You got it. Thank you so much. Thank you.